0: You have the whole of the passage of Isaiah 53 in your orders of service. We're not going to read it through now as a classical reading, but whenever you get bored with me, which is likely to happen, then you've got it there to sit and read. We will actually go through this in a fairly verse-by-verse way uh, as we go through my talk. This is a scary bit. so far I'm ahead over the last few months I've been reading from the book of Acts and this was something I did intentionally when I was sort of last thinking what will I read next I chose it because I think as we've sort of alluded to in all sorts of ways and through the prayers that we've just had I think as a church, both in this place physically, and as the church more broadly through this country, we're at a time of challenge and change, and Acts is all about just such a time. In that book, Luke tries to set out for us what happened in the evolving church as it grew from the time immediately after the ascension of Jesus, when all of the disciples would fit basically probably into one room or at least into one house in Jerusalem, to a point only 30 years later when that same church numbered thousands of believers, probably tens of thousands, and stretched all the way from North Africa through the Middle East, Asia Minor. Greece, Macedonia, and into Rome, Italy, and beyond. That all happened within the lifetimes of the first converts and within the periods of ministry of individuals like Peter and Paul. Amazing things happen on every page in the book of Acts. There's miracles, there are conversions, you've got imprisonments, executions... And also, of course, you've got major bus stops within the church itself. They occur with distressing regularity and with great sad familiarity as people wrestled with what it meant to be the people of God. So there's little doubt, it seems to me, that the book of Acts has a lot to say to any church, especially in a time of change. So why am I going to talk about Isaiah? Well, mixed in with all the action from which Acts gets its name, we have keynote addresses, speeches given by people like Peter and various other disciples where they're trying to explain all of the stuff that was happening around them. And whenever they did this, they often referred back to, to the scriptures they had, which, of course, was what we call the Old Testament. Now, why did they bother? If God was obviously acting through them and in a new, exciting way, why hark back to old history, most of it at least 400 years before the time that they lived in? Well, these people, these were, of course, Jewish by background and upbringing, And for them, it was very important to establish that what was happening in Jesus wasn't some completely bizarre new story, completely off the beaten track of what everyone had believed before. They had come to realize that they were a part of an amazing new chapter in a very old story the story of God's plans to heal a damaged world and to restore a wounded creation. But they faced a major problem in trying to communicate this story. And sometimes we face similar problems. The problem was most of the people around them, particularly the Jewish folk, thought they knew this story very well already and also thought they knew how it ended. God was going to send his Messiah. This would be his anointed one. And he would come in and sort things out. He would be David's true and final heir. He would be the king over all kings. He would defeat Israel's enemies. And he would restore the temple as the main place and really the only place where people could ultimately meet with God. And the disciples themselves had probably believed something not unlike that insofar as they'd thought about it before they met Jesus. But now they'd come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had already come. There's a difficulty because Jesus didn't fit the commonly held messianic job description. He had the wrong sorts of of personal characteristics. He didn't have all the essential criteria. This man had ended up on a cross, killed as a criminal between two other criminals. The pagan Romans had been left in charge, and there was no sign that anyone acknowledged Israel as the people who had true spiritual insight. Jesus could not have been the Messiah, QED. Now, how were they to challenge that view? They started with the scriptures. They started with at least a source of authority that most of the people they were talking to initially, the Jewish people, acknowledge. And they used these scriptures to question some of the presuppositions that the folk they were speaking to carried around in their heads. You see, they had to undermine generations' worth of prejudice and also of accepted biblical interpretation if they were ever going to open up a way in the hearts of their hearers for the possibility that Jesus might just be the Messiah, the Christ. They had to change their expectations so throughout the early chapters of Acts we have continuous references to the Jewish scriptures particularly to the Psalms and the prophets Peter in Acts 2 he quotes from Joel Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 on the day of Pentecost and in the next chapter Acts 3 we have the Description of the healing of the man at the gate of the temple. And then he's called to give account of that, not once, but twice, once to a sort of interested general crowd and then to a much more aggressive audience in terms of the priests, the temple police, and the Sadducees. And in that, he uses images from Isaiah and references to Psalm 118 and Psalm 2. And then in Act 7, we have what often reads like a rather odd defense that Stephen makes before the Sanhedrin, where he goes back to the very beginning of their accepted story, back to God's promises to Abram, through the whole story of Moses, a bit of which we've already talked about, right up to the promise of Solomon's temple and the building of it as the place where people would come and worship. But then Stephen turns the story on its head and he used the prophets to challenge the idea, the standard temple theology that said the temple was the only place that people could find God and worship him, making it clear that the prophets clearly understood, even if the priests of his day didn't, that God didn't dwell in houses made by hands. So we have the old story, but with a subversive new ending. Subversive enough to get Stephen killed. In Acts 8 then, we go on to the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. This was an important man in the government of Ethiopia. Queen Candias is probably a slight misunderstanding. Candias is just another word for queen in the local dialect. But he was one of the people who was involved in running the country. And he was clearly attracted to the Jewish religion and the God of the Jews. Attractive enough to have gone gone to all the bother of coming from uh, North Africa to Jerusalem to be part of some of the worship. And attracted enough to access scripture and he clearly had some or all of the Jewish scriptures because he was reading from one of them, he was reading from Isaiah. To so Philip who had been brought there basically miraculously, Philip was told by an angel to go to this road, the road south out of Jerusalem towards Gaza which would have been the beginning of the road home for the Ethiopian eunuch. To the Ethiopian eunuch, of course, it looked like a chance meeting. He had no idea that the hand of God had been already active in getting Philip there. And so Philip asks him, does he understand what he's reading? He says, how could he understand? And he invites Philip to explain things to him. And out of these passages, Philip begins to tell the story of Jesus. He begins to explain the gospel, beginning with this picture in Isaiah 53. So this begs the question, what would the gospel of Jesus look like if you begin from the perspective of Isaiah? this is an important question because passages like these give shape To what was a completely new idea, at least in the the general religious culture, of what God's Messiah might be like. It was a very different picture from the one that most people had grown up with and had come to accept. So let's have a look at what Isaiah has to say. And this deals with the so-called servant songs. Anyone who remembers all the way back to last Sunday may get a bit of deja vu here. So before you say he just stole Stephen McIlwain's sermon, I would like in my defense to point out that this was a theme that I had kind of decided on in June. The Blakes can give testimony to that because we talked about it a little bit in our holidays in July. And I actually had a draft of this written before I came to church last Sunday morning. To add to my sense that maybe there was something that God wanted us to hear about this today, I think we'll find that some of the themes tie up with the themes that Steve was trying to introduce us to that were coming from last week's assembly, and that was the first report of anything about the assembly I've heard. So maybe it's coincidence, but maybe God actually has something to say to us. Isaiah 53 is the fourth of the so-called servant songs. They begin in Isaiah 42 and they talk of the servant of the Lord who would stand for justice, who would give sight to the blind, who would free the prisoner. One who would restore Israel but also be a light to the Gentiles, expanding the agenda. A servant who finds words to sustain the weary, one who would stand in the place of the lawbreakers and bring peace to the rebellious. And this servant was the one who would preach good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom and release for prisoners, a servant to comfort those who mourn, to turn mourning into gladness and despair into praise but here's the rub through all of this runs the theme of suffering never deeper or darker than in Isaiah 53 this servant was the one who would also be despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering God coming into our place and experiencing the pain that so many of us experience. He was going to take these sufferings willingly on himself for the sake of others, but we're told that those very people would misinterpret what was happening to him as a sign that God had rejected him. He was not the Messiah, he was not God's servant. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. It's bad enough to be blamed in the wrong. But think of the hurt when the very ones whose pains and punishment you come to take on yourself, when they raise the loudest voices in your wrongful prosecution. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the shearers is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. Seems ridiculous. Why not defend yourself? But how could he speak when his vindication would result in our judgment? This blameless servant would even be dishonored in death. We are told that he would be assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And there's a worrying direct association there between riches and wickedness. One that we need to ponder at times when we consider our own wealth relative to those around us, even in our local community and in the world at large. But then we have what, for me, are some of the hardest words of all. We're told that this servant would experience what it was to be crushed by the Lord. So that we who deserve to feel the pressure and grinding pain of that rod of justice brought down on us, so that we could be spared. Yet, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. I won't pretend I find that phrase easy. I don't find the idea of the Father's sacrifice of his Son for our sakes an easy idea. Maybe it's only in the Trinity that we get any sense of what this could possibly mean or how this could possibly be. The God who crushed his servant was also the servant crushed. And how can any of us separate the suffering of the child from the pain that tears at the heart of the parent? But in this darkest of places there comes the promise, the light. Promise of life beyond death promise of a new family, of children fathered by the death of a son, of a world of darkness which cannot overcome the light of God's life. Wonderful echoes reaching forward through the centuries into the beginning of John's gospel. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his death. There's resurrection here. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's just what a wonderful phrase. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah did see honour and glory ahead for God's servant. But it wasn't because he was going to walk the well worn path of political and military victory. This servant was going to walk with those who were judged and rightly condemned, walk with them all the way to death. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. That was what the disciples saw in Jesus. That was what attracted others to him. Jews first, and then more and more Gentiles. The outsiders, the ones who had no part in the promises of God, as a lot of current. Jewish theology understood things. It must have attracted the Ethiopian. This is a man who was defined by what he wasn't. He was a eunuch. We're not given a name even. This is someone who'd had his manhood taken away before he'd even reached it. Someone who could look but not touch in his personal life who could observe but not belong in his chosen religion. He was almost certainly castrated as a child to prepare him for court life, and that has huge hormonal consequences that his body would never have developed into that of a man. Puberty would never happen. The people of the time often referred to such people as the third sex. Almost the ultimate outsiders. He had a politically influential role, but he could never be part of his own family. And his status also prevented him from ever being a fully accepted proselyte into Judaism. Deuteronomy 23.1 says this, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord this man could now be healed. At the time Peter had explained the good news of Jesus, the servant whose suffering had opened the way for all to belong, to really belong to God's people, the eunuch was ready to sign up. This was the cure for what ailed him. This was the Scratch that found the right place in the center of the itch. This was the living water that fed the thirst of his heart. He could be baptized. He could belong. Not because of anything he had done. But because God's servant had suffered in his place... A servant who had been wounded and died so that he could know peace. A servant who had risen again to see his offspring and prolong his days. The disciples always preached Jesus and the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ and the promise of the resurrection for those who belong to Christ. It's no wonder, maybe, that we're told that the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. So what about us? What about Fitzroy? Do we need to change expectations the way the book of Acts? We see people having to change their expectations. First, last, and always, as individuals and as a people, our faith is in the one who did what we couldn't do so we would know the acceptance that we never deserved. But if the church is also meant in some way to imitate Christ, then we must expect difficulty and struggle along the way. The path of obedience will not be easy and may not match our personal expectations, just as the life and particularly the death of Jesus didn't match the expectations of many who were otherwise very faithful religious people, zealous Jews. The question comes back to this. Do the priorities we set for our life together sit comfortably along the pattern set by the one we say we follow? And changing expectations often brings struggle. There were repeated struggles in the story of the book of Acts. As believers wrestled over what it meant to belong to Jesus as they saw the doors flung wide to include Samaritans and Gentiles of all sorts into God's family, well, some rejoiced, but many panicked. They feared that the wind blowing through those open doors was about to blow away everything they held dear. But we are called Christians not because we honour certain creeds, Sing certain hymns, do church in certain ways. We are called Christians if we are followers, if we are disciples, disciples of Jesus and doing His business. One version of Acts 11:26 goes this way: The disciples first did business under the name of Christians at Antioch. So who will? Fitzroy serve as we learn to walk together in the way of the suffering servant whose sorrows will we take up whose burdens will we bear will the Lord's will prosper in our hands can only pray that God's spirit will guide us forward to do the Lord's business together. Amen.